Good morning. It's a bit exciting. I've actually never done a Sunday morning before. So it's very exciting. Let's see if I'm Sunday morning material. <laughs> if this was a traditional church, then I would not be. So thank you, Todd, for carving that out. Awesome. Wow. I'm just going to look at you now. <laughs> very good. Okay, free coffee to the first person who knows what I'm going to be preaching on. Who is that? Jared. Jared gets a free coffee. Nick. Nick will pay for it. <laughs> you have been listening. Thank you. Everyone's like. <laughs> oh, all right. You know, I was upset when I arrived this morning because I went through my word yesterday and every single time I go through like whatever I've prepped, more opens up and I was making notes everywhere but, and I left that piece of paper at home. So when I got here today, I was like, no. But then I sat down and I read through it again. And look, I've just got like thousands of these everywhere. So who knows? And this is different to yesterday. So who knows what you're going to get this morning? All right. So if you've um, you know, listened to the last couple of preachers, who was here for that, that Sunday afternoon that I did and the Tuesday night? All right. Beautiful. Okay. Very good. Because I'm still on the theme around the fear of the Lord and in the context of judgment, mercy and persecution. And the reason why I'm still there is because He's still there. And I'm not gonna move on until He does. So, uh, and specifically what I wanna talk about today is in the context, well, within the fear of the Lord, judgment, mercy and persecution, like specifically focusing on family today. So yeah, enjoy. All right. <laughs> Do you love how I put him first? He said. He said. <laughs> All right. So how is this still relevant? Well, like I just said, it's the Word of the Lord. But apart from that, you know, we've, every time we get up here, we, we, we touch on the, that we're in a season of outpouring. It's obvious. We're an outpouring. We're enjoying it. We're loving it. And, you know, sometimes we can associate that with a corporate movement, right? But saying that we're in outpouring, if I'm gonna bring it a little bit, what I wanna do today is I wanna bring it closer to home, meaning I wanna remove any, any, any distance between what we see as a corporate movement to what we see as, in, as within us individually. Um, I just saw Loretta and I was like, hi. <laughs> uh, yes, and so what I'm gonna do is I'm going to, I'm gonna, if I had to, summarize my entire word today in one sentence. If I, if th this is what it would be. The corporate cry for revival and outpouring is equivalent to the personal cry for individual breakthrough. So if I had to reduce it into one sentence, that's what, what it would be. All right, now as all of you know, or th those who know me, I'm very passionate about equipping um, people around the inner world, how the inner world works. Uh, because once you understand something, you can action something. And, you know, I've, most of what I bring is around what I've journeyed out of Egypt myself. So whatever I learn along the way, you know, every time, every time I've journeyed something, it becomes something that I can then export and share. And in, in all of my time of journeying out of Egypt, uh, there are, there's, I've learnt that breakthrough. So now, yes, we're in, we're in corporate outpouring, so we don't need to touch that. Let's talk about individual breakthrough. 
One thing that I have learnt about breakthrough is that it usually manifests or comes about in two main ways. One is that the, the grace of God, where the Lord inclines Himself to us, right? He inclines Himself to us. The other way is the heart posture, where we incline ourselves to Him. There's a big difference there. So I'm gonna be unpacking that throughout today. And the other thing that I've learnt around that very thing that I've just said, is that there's one major thing that hinders our ability to come into manifest or land or see breakthrough in our worlds and that's conflict. Now, conflict is too broad, so I'm gonna break it down into two main categories. One is persecution and the other one is prosecution. Okay, so we're talking about individual breakthrough and we're talking about breakthrough happens in two main ways. One is the grace of God that He inclines Himself to us. It says in the Word where He inclined, He saved Israel with an outstretched arm. That's the word incline. And one where we incline and we posture our heart toward Him. Now conflict, conflict based on persecution and prosecution. Because I think pretty much everything we journey comes under one of those two categories there. Now our ability to navigate conflict either one, is based on where we are on the spectrum. I'm not talking about that spectrum. I'm talking about the spectrum from slavery to sonship. So our ability to navigate prosecution or persecution conflict will be contingent on where we are on that spectrum from slavery to sonship. Now you've heard many preachers and teachers and sermons and um, podcasts on what slavery is and coming, coming out of slavery into sonship. So I'm not, I'm not gonna unpack that. You guys know like, you know, everything you need to know about that. But what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna honour the theme that is on at the moment in the context of the fear of the Lord, judgment and mercy. So, you know, when we hear the word slave, well, maybe it's just me, but when, when I hear the word slave in the context of the faith, I always, you know, associate that with the Israelites in Egypt because that's the first time that that identity was born. They weren't slaves before that, right? So there's a lot to learn, there's a lot to unpack from that. I've got so many post-it notes, I don't even know which one comes first. Okay. <laughs> All right, so yeah, going back to the Israelites. So we, that was the, the first time that the identity or the association of slavery in Israelites was, was born in Egypt. They didn't enter Egypt as slaves, they entered as sons and they were actually quite favoured when they entered Egypt. They, Pharaoh gave them choice land. It was Goshen was paradise. He gave them his cattle to steward. He, so he actually empowered all of their abilities and, and, and know-hows and trades, right? But we know that, you know that Pharaoh passed on, Joseph passed on, and then for 400 years, they were slaves. So they entered in as sons. They underwent a identity altering process became slaves, but then when they were exiled or when they left, they were technical sons because they didn't leave as slaves. They left as free people. So they were technical sons. Now that kind of describes what our walk of faith looks like. When we get saved, technically we're free, but it is, as long as it remains head knowledge, and it doesn't then transform our inner world, it's only ever a technicality.
which is why we're instructed to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So when we get saved and we're told that, you know, all of the amazing things that should technically come with salvation, as long as it only remains head knowledge, we will only ever manifest a technical son. And we know what that looks like because the technical sons that exited Egypt, we know what happened to them in the wilderness. They got what technical sons expect. So we have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Now, there, I've preached on this before, so I'm not gonna talk about it now, but just really quickly, this, their struggle, their struggle throughout the wilderness was because of their value systems that were created in bondage, right? So it wasn't just labels. They didn't just have labels. We're Jews, so we're slaves. You're Egyptian, so you're free. It wasn't that it began. They were actually born into, their DNA was born into family, legacy, tradition, dynamics of slavery. So it began to alter and shape their hearts and their minds. And that's what they carried into the wilderness. An altered shape, an altered mind that saw God in that same way. So I just talked about before, technical freedom, as long as it remains head knowledge. So what we, the aim of today, what, I, what I'm gonna bring in, what I'm gonna be holding in tension the entire time is a couple of different things. So we're talking about family, talking about judgment, mercy, persecution, and we're talking about the being on the spectrum from slavery to sonship. But at the base of all of that, the whole point of today is to understand that as long as our knowledge is head knowledge, until it becomes a load-bearing pillar in our inner world, a load-bearing pillar in our temple, we're not gonna be able to navigate conflict because conflict, persecution and prosecution will send you into fight or flight. Okay, let me just navigate all of my post-it notes. All right, now, You know, it really doesn't even matter whether you identify as a slave or a son. It doesn't matter what you identify as because it all comes down to what pillars you have in your inner world, load-bearing pillars. When someone speaks truth, and I'm talking like not their version of truth, I'm talking about the Word of God truth, picture it as a sound wave that goes out. And if you are an empty vortex, it'll get lost in your sea of emptiness. But where you have pillars, load-bearing pillars, and a sound wave of truth comes out, it'll hit up against that and it'll start to do this. That's where you bear witness. That's where you know. That's where faith is cultivated. Thank you. So, 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 all right. Now, again, it doesn't matter whether you identify a son or a slave because I'm gonna unpack it's something I've been talking about for a while that brings those two um, identities into play. So in the context of judgment and mercy, judgment and mercy, the Holy Spirit is no respecter of persons, meaning judgment and mercy will do their thing according to what they are in the spirit world, regardless of whether you're a son or a slave. Judgment will act in your favour if you're a slave according to the scope in which it has to work with according to the spirit world. Even if you're a slave, it doesn't matter. Son, I'm like slave, slave. Negative preach. Anyway, um, so the Holy Spirit is no respecter of persons, meaning judgment and mercy will do their thing. 
Judgment and mercy are not determined by. Now this is where I see, I see this all the time. I've seen it in, in the things that I've had to trade out, like coming out of Egypt myself in the context of family. So remember, we're talking about in the context of family. Judgment and mercy and spiritual dynamics are not determined by what you consider or you define as honour, what you define as, you know, um, you know, your, whatever your culture has divine, whatever your family legacy, whatever your traditions, whatever your effort or performance, it's not defined by that. Judgment and mercy and the appropriation of that is determined by the posture of our hearts. Which is why when people catch that, when people catch it and then they run, there's a massive separation, there's a divide. Now, so what I'm, what I'm describing there is value systems, okay? So everything that I just listed, that's, that's what makes up our value systems. Now, each and every one of us in here are coming out of Egypt in a particular area in your world. Like Maddie says, unless your face is glowing like the sun, like somewhere in an area of our world, we are coming out of Egypt. So this, you can apply this anywhere, but I'm gonna shift gears a bit now. I'm going to replace the word Egypt with family. Now, you can, whatever you define as family, okay? But I'm gonna, let's replace the word Egypt with family because Egypt is where the Israelites learnt their identity and family is traditionally where we learn our identity. Okay. And some of us have had to redefine what family is on the journey. You know, sometimes our natural families don't align spiritually, even if they're believers, they don't spiritually align to where we're at. But we have to, you know, we, we have to choose, we have to follow the cloud. Or some, you know, some of us, our family aren't saved. So we've had to redefine what family looks like. And for a lot of us, we've had to find or establish ourselves in church family. But if you don't understand or deal with your value systems as defined by you, you're bringing that value system into your new family and conflict will happen. You will face persecution, you will face prosecution within your new church family. Okay, it's kind of awkward because I'm standing in my church family on the stage talking to you about church family and conflict. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, I'm just, this is what the Lord wanted me to talk about. All right. So we have to address our value systems because you know, God's you know, gonna lead us, because he, He's good, He does His part. He's gonna lead us to, where, to what He has for us and we will miss it if we're not understanding the place that we're journeying and we're, land, we're establishing and integrating into through our value systems. Now, conflict as we know it has the potential to cause a lot of damage, okay? I mean, I'm sure every person in here knows that, understands that. The reason why I think conflict causes damage is because of our response to it. Conflict in and of itself doesn't have a power source to cause damage. It's simply a suggestion. It's simply a perspective. It's a proposition. And it's what we do, it's how we take it and how we respond to it that will determine whether it's damaging or healing. But again, what's that butting up against? Our value systems. So another way to look at it is this. We're talking about family because we are. 
and we're coming out of whatever you define as family, whether it's your natural family or your previous church family, whatever it is, if you don't understand how value systems work, you're gonna bring with you the deficits that weren't filled there, which produce ideals and expectations. And when you land into, into your new family, that's what gets risen up. That becomes the top of the list of the value system. I'm not seeing this, this and this, which I didn't get over here. I wasn't defined over here. I didn't, I'm not getting this, this and this. So automatically, There, there are grounds for offence or there are grounds for, 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 for hurt and betrayal and disappointment. So we have to understand that in the coming out of has to be a massaging and a realigning of those value systems because it's always only ever going to be subjective. There's only one truth, there's only one plumb line and we have to constantly bring our value systems up against that plumb line to see how much it's wobbled. The other reason why that's really important is because our value systems will determine how well we can rightly divide. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about rightly dividing between prosecution and persecution because both of those things actually demand a response from you. If you're being persecuted, that will actually require a response from you, which I'm gonna go into in a minute. If you're being prosecuted, that requires a response from you. They actually demand a response from you. You bear weight to some degree in both of those categories. So we need to have the ability to rightly divide, otherwise conflict will constantly keep us in a place where we're disinheriting ourselves. Conflict, if we don't have load-bearing pillars, if we haven't had our value systems realigned and massaged, will cause us to go into fight or flight, which actually might look good in, at the time where you block someone on Facebook or you run away from your problems or you go into hectic confrontation, but at the end of the day, you're just disinheriting. We're, we, that's what we're doing, we're disinheriting ourselves because the conflict demands a response. So I'm gonna quickly unpack persecution again, just really, really quickly. Persecution is, uh, the, well, the meaning of the word persecution means to pursue, to follow after, to press toward, right? So if you're being persecuted, that's what it feels like. It, it feels like an attack. And the root word of the word persecution means dread, timidity, and faithlessness. So if someone's persecuting you, really what they're doing is they're projecting their own faithlessness and their own fears onto you. And if you're persecuting someone, you're doing the same. Now, persecution is a product of our value systems and it's actually a form of judgment. For you to even think that you're able to project your own faithlessness and your own fears on someone, you formed a judgment. That's what you've done. And we're gonna use, I mean, I did unpack this very story a couple of weeks ago, but I'm just gonna use snippets. You know, Sarah was the perfect example because in, uh, can you put up 16, Genesis 16 too? Yep, all right, so this is a conversation right before everything went to poop. She's saying to her husband, see now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Now, the last time I preached on this, I was saying that there's nowhere in scripture that actually supports that. 
There is no evidence that the Lord shut her womb. The only time that her barrenness is mentioned is back in, um, I think the beginning of the chapter where we are introduced to her and it says, this is Sarah and she's barren. Doesn't say anything about the Lord doing anything. So there we see she reveals, she reveals the, one of, the, you know, a massive card. The Lord has shut my womb. So she's already justified why she's about to create an Ishmael. Okay, value systems. Now, and I'll go into that in a minute. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Okay. So I'm gonna tie a quick loose end around persecution. If you are being persecuted or you find yourself persecuting someone, you are illegitimately distributing the weight and accountability of your own deficit onto someone else. That's what persecution is. Whereas prosecution is that there is grounds that need to be answered for. It actually requires accountability on your part. There is, even if it's disproportionate, even if it's only 5%, you're accountable to that 5%. But as soon as we feel conflict, we go into fight flight if we don't understand how to rightly divide. Okay. What's not okay is disassociation. Fight or flight, either way, is disassociative, it's not solution. Because when we disassociate, we actually, that's actually a form of judgment too. Okay. So going back to defining family. Can you see that there's three or four main plates spinning in the air? So we have to hold all of these in tension and and I'll, I'll tie it all up towards the end. So going back to redefining family. You know the saying that says you can choose your friends but you can't choose your family? That's the same for church family. You can choose who you would like to build deep intimate relationships with, friends, but you can't choose the church. The church is the church. The church is the church. You're not gonna get along with every one of your family members. You're not gonna get along with all of the siblings in the body. So we, we, we can't respond accordingly. It's unrealistic. We will remain in constant fight or flight. So, I mean, the Lord was very clear on that when I, when I was prepping this. We, we think we have options. The church is the church. And the Lord rates family, He really does. And there is a bond of family that I'm gonna quickly go over. There's a bond of family that we are actually, we actually bear responsibility to honour and uphold, whether we like it or not. All right, so can you please put up 2 Corinthians 6.14, okay. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? Now, as I, you know, you could unpack that forever, but the only thing that I really wanna highlight there is the word yoked. Do not be unequally yoked. The word yoke there in Greek is zugos. Zugos. Zugos means a joining and a coupling, okay? And let's quickly go to Colossians 2.2. 2. 
that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. Okay, I won't worry about the rest because what I want there is knit. Okay, so the word knit there is, I was supposed to check this with you before. Sumbibadzo. Is that a Greek word? Is that ancient Greek? It is a Greek word, but is it ancient Greek or is it? Peter, have you heard that one before? No? Okay, so oh, you have. It's ancient Greek, okay? <laughs> so it's obviously ancient Greek. So the word knit there, sumbibadzo, means to drive together and to unite in association or affection. So what we see here is that we are actually soul tied. The church is called the bond of family that God created. His intention for family is that we're soul tied, right? That we're soul tied, we're zugost, we're sumbibadzoed. And it's not based on emotions or felt need. It's just because that's His design for family. It's not negotiable. So it's not based on our emotions or felt need. But what we have there in the word knit is to drive together or unite in association or affection. So affection is a bonus. If you're able to connect with people within the church body, that there is a, that you act, there's chemistry, there's genuine affection, that's, that's a blessing, that's great. But it's not the plumb line. You know, Rachel, uh, she mentioned this, I don't know how many uh, weeks or months ago. She said, I don't know whether this was hers or whether she read it somewhere else, but she said, you know, church is firstly, it, it serves as a hospital. And then from hospital, people become family and from family, it forms an army. David's valiant men, and especially Saul at the end of um, 1 Samuel chapter 10, right at the end where God makes a distinction between the valiant men and the rebels, those men, it doesn't say that they were driven together by any other association. It, the only association that, that we have there is the posture of their heart toward the Lord. The only thing they had in common was the fear of the Lord. And because they had the fear of the Lord, it meant that they were able to come together in association. So the fear of the Lord is what caused them to form an army. It's what caused them to first fight together as a family and they, they were considered immediately a resource, which actually also means army. Thank you. Okay. So many post-it notes, I'm like, <laughs> just one second. All right, so both of those examples show that they understood they were zugos, they were soon be badzoed. And the common ground was the fear of the Lord. And we know what happened. We know that they absolutely annihilated the enemy. So, and I don't know if I've already mentioned this this morning or if I've said it before, but there is a difference between kingdom family and church family. Church family is our responsibility, right? It's a bond that we have to uphold and honour because as unto the Lord, it was His idea. Kingdom family describes more the more uh, intimate scroll relationships that become more around heart access and, and heart 
bonding. You know, I shared before that, you know, uh, by pursuing scroll, by choosing to put the Lord first, it cost me a lot, just like it's cost everybody else. And one of the major things that it cost was relationships. And I also said in that same preach, I said every single relationship that I had to lay down, because that's what it was. I didn't throw them away. I laid them down and I let the Lord redefine them. But not everyone's gonna come along on the journey. Not everyone's gonna pick it up and go, yeah, I, I don't mind. I don't mind now our relationship looking as unto the Lord and not unto my own designs. Not everyone does that. So I had to lay them down in order to do my race, run my race. And I said in that same preach that the Lord completely restored those relationships in other people, not tit for tat. If I laid down 10, I didn't get 10, but I, I got 10 relationships in three people or four people. He truly provided and fulfilled everything that I laid down. So that to me is kingdom family. Kingdom family is not projecting our own emotion, emotionalism and deficits on somebody else and expecting them to fulfil them because we're all part of God's family. That's manipulation. There is a difference between church family and kingdom family. You know, even Jesus had His peeps. He had His peeps, then He had His peeps, and then He had His peeps. All right. Now, once we understand that concept, we're empowered then to champion our scrolls because we're not like a rat on a, on a, what are those things called? Wheel. <laughs> we're not like a rat on one of those wheels trying to, trying to, you know, and, and, that's, and you know what? It's a drain on our resource. It's a drain on our time and on our energy and our emotions because we're not empowered to shift those things. And what it's actually doing, it's actually causing us to disinherit ourselves. I promised you a recap. I'm gonna do a really, really quick recap just to explain these concepts. Because it's just such a good example. All right, so we're gonna get back to Sarah and Abraham. And I just read to you before the conversation where Sarah has this silly idea that she's gonna produce a, an heir for Abraham and she goes about it obviously in, in a really silly way. And then she realises that it kind of like bit her, bit her behind because it says that she was despised in, Sarah, in Hagar's eyes. So let's go to Genesis 16, five to six. So she's annoyed now. Then Sarah said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes the Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarah, indeed your maid is in your hand, do to her as you please. Now, let me just, oh, there's so much I wanna say. I'm going to, I'm going to de-Shakespearean it for you. I'm going to say it again and by expanding on the original meanings. Okay, we all know the story, so I don't have to go on and on about it. So basically the word wrong where she says, may my wrong, be upon you. She's not talking about her mistake. Yeah, I kind of I made a stupid decision, but now you're gonna pay for that mistake. She didn't say that. My wrong means cruelty, violence, and unjust gain. 
So she's describing how she feels because of the consequences of her decision. So to paraphrase that conversation, it looks like this. Then Sarah said to Abram, let the violence, cruelty and unjust gain that I have suffered be upon you. May the Lord judge, vindicate, punish and sentence between me and you. Slightly religious because we see two seconds later that she didn't rely on the Lord to vindicate anything on her behalf. To which her husband replies, she's still at your disposal, vindicate yourself. That's the, that's the essence of that conversation. She's st- so he abdicates, she's still at your disposal, do, do with her as you want. So, and, and we know that she did. So we see there, that Sarah creates, Sarah forms a judgment out of the value system of her heart because she believes that God was responsible for her barrenness. So she's, you know, faithless, you know, she's fearing that she's not gonna get her promise so she decides to create her own Ishmael, literally. Then she suffers the consequences from that because she, you know, didn't take Hagar's person into account and what that might produce out of someone who's now carrying your husband's baby. Anyway, So Sarah went into fight, Hagar went into flight. Sarah's part was the greater part, carried the greater weight because she was a catalyst, she was a judge, jury, executioner. And we know that she did vindicate herself, which caused Hagar to flee into the desert. Now when Hagar fled into the desert, really quickly, this is a real quick recap. When she fled into the desert, the angel of the Lord met her there and he didn't then, he didn't validate her feels he actually spoke identity over her. He spoke identity over her and the baby, almost an identical prophecy as to what God gave Abram for Isaac. He said, you're gonna have a son and his descendants will be, you won't be able to count them. They'll be countless. That's what Um, was promised over Isaac. So he speaks an amazing word of identity into her. She then, oh, you know what? Before I go into that, I wanna introduce here, this is where we come into mercy now. We see mercy demonstrated in a way that we're not, we're probably not usually used to associating mercy. So this is put a pin in that for one second where he speaks, instead of pandering to her felt need, he speaks identity into her. In Psalm 89:14, it says, judgment and justice are the foundation or the habitation of your throne or foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth shall go before you. Mercy, I unpacked this before, but it's so good. I'm gonna say it again. Mercy is said, and that means kindness, godliness, you know, good deeds, pity or favour. And the root word of mercy, I just realised that Adrian's here and he's gonna, my, how's my pronunciation going? <laughs> K said, sounds like a song, isn't there a song? Oh, it's K San, okay, <laughs> okay. All right, okay, so mercy is K said, which means kindness, kindness, godliness, you know, pity, good deed. And the root word of K said is corsad, and corsad means to bow the neck as though in courtesy to an equal. All right, so that's K said, corsad. So the angel of the Lord validates, sorry, it doesn't validate her feelings. He speaks direct identity into her and he tells her to go back to fulfill her role in family. Okay? Now, 
I believe on Hagar's part, because she understood the fear of the Lord, I believe she had the fear of the Lord, that she was able to not make a judgment. She allowed the Lord to give her strategy to not vindicate herself. By the angel of the Lord prophesying over her, her identity, his identity, sending her back, made room for the Lord to vindicate her. So mercy is attached to, to judgment. That's called staying in the room. Hagar stayed in the room which allowed the Lord to vindicate her and her son. She fulfilled her role in family. Had she continued on her way, she was halfway back to Egypt, which is where she's from, she's Egyptian. Had she continued back, she would have been a single mum with an illegitimate child. So returning to Sarah was her submitting to the judgment and the value system of the Lord. Because let's not forget, they, they were a family. She's, she was a servant, she was a bond servant. Bond servants, right? Back then, bond servants weren't seen as someone who'd come in and clock on at nine and clock off at five. Bond servants actually came and lived in the household. They were actually almost like adopted, they were part of the family. So she was part of a household, she was part of a family. And not only that, she was given to him as his wife. So there's a lot of, that's not what I'm gonna talk about now, but anyway. Um, so she chose to not allow Sarah's persecution of her to disinherit her. She went back, she submitted herself. That, that looks like something, that feels like something to submit yourself. Even if there's grounds, she submitted herself so that she wasn't gonna be disinherited, which allowed the Lord who sees she took that Elroy revelation and she took that as, oh, I see, I see you. If you see me, then you see this whole thing. So she upheld and honoured Zugos and Sumbibadzo. She did, definitely didn't act on her felt need. Now, th this story is super powerful in so many ways, but it also helps us understand what makes family legitimate or illegitimate. If we remain orphans or slaves, we're going to disinherit ourselves and allow others to disinherit us. And if we don't understand our value systems, we're gonna to continue to build in our own ways and in our own understanding. And then when you do that, when you build based on your value systems, if you build in your own ways and in your own understanding, you will form judgments and you will then appropriate those judgments that produce consequences that go beyond your understanding. Consequences that can't be contained. You know, I really want, I really, really want you guys to catch this. We don't carry the full counsel of the Lord. Now, just imagine, especially if there's a massive lack of load-bearing pillars in our world. If you've got, if, you know, if we have a huge lack of load-bearing pillars, we should not be forming judgments. So we don't carry the full counsel of the Lord. So therefore, we can't possibly anticipate the extent that our decisions are gonna, what they're gonna produce. You can't possibly anticipate that because you don't carry the full counsel of the Lord. We can't underwrite the process, which is why when the Israelites complained in the desert about the worthless food that God sent from heaven, they were bit by the serpents. And the word bit there means to lend upon usury, which means you've taken out a loan and now the, the rates are unreasonably high. They, they held a place 
of grumbling and complaining because they projected their value system on the Lord. They took out a loan because they tried to ascend to a place and occupy a place that they didn't have capacity for. And the Lord let them pay the unreasonably high rates of that loan. They, can't, they couldn't underwrite the process. So when we form judgments out of our own value systems because we carry such limited counsel of the Lord, we can't contain the effect of those consequences. We can't anticipate how far they're gonna spread. We can't underwrite the process. Like Eve, Eve took the fruit because she tried to occupy a place. She, you know what? Eve did not anticipate that her choice of taking the fruit was gonna produce the fall. And here we still are. She, she was, that did not go through her head. Sarah did not anticipate that by creating an Ishmael, that she was gonna create a feud that lasted for the rest of time that was gonna bring her family in and out, in and out, in and out of trauma. They didn't anticipate those things. So judgment based on our own understanding is like leaven, we can't control or anticipate how far it spreads and the damage that it causes. We can't bear the weight of the consequences it produces. Now I wanna, um, before landing, I just wanna, I wanna bring back uh, Psalm 18.25. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With the blameless, and in the original text, it's upright, not just, bl- it doesn't, it says upright man. So I'm gonna read it in the original like that. So with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. And with the upright man, you will show yourself upright. And I explained before that the word upright there, so with um, with the upright man, the tormi man, tormi means entire, integrous, truth, undefiled, without blemish, you will show yourself tormam. It's not the same word. So with a tormi man, you will show yourself tormam. And tormam means to complete, to come to an end, to make an end, to perfect, to consume, to accomplish, to be all gone and to make whole, to be whole. So I paraphrased that scripture last time saying, with the, with the corsed, you show yourself corsed. With the tormim, you show yourself torment, meaning this. With those that show kindness and walk in a godly manner, you will be kind and bow your neck as though to an equal. And to those who remain integrous and undefiled, you will perfect and manifest yourself in a way that causes matters to come to an end, be consumed and done away with, bringing all things to wholeness. That's what he did for Hagar. That is what it looks like to relinquish our all control and all rights, to vindicate ourselves and allow the Lord to show Himself tall man for us. Because we, we can't contain the matter, only He can. We can't bring it to fullness, to completion. I'm gonna, I'm gonna land now and I'm gonna share with you, um, I'm gonna share with you an encounter that I had on Friday morning. You could probably put the pads on now, actually. I'm gonna, so on Friday morning, I was going over my word because I had finished it by then. And I had this encounter that wasn't anywhere related to my word. And it was so powerful that it caused me to get rid of 50% of my preach. 
and I replaced it with another half from the revelation through the encounter. Can you put another one on? I don't like that one. Thank you. All right. Well, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, it's not the, not the vibe that I want right now. Thank you. Maddie's coming, she knows. All right. Okay. Now I've got to fix this vibe. <laughs> no, yeah, anyway. So just before, like before sharing the encounter, I want to bring back to the forefront it is our responsibility to form load-bearing pillars. Now, I use that word intentionally. Load, yes, thank you. Load-bearing meaning that you take your place in family and you carry weight and responsibility in family. If some of us have been hurt by parents that abdicated or were absent or you know, projected their brokenness on us, that's because they, 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 they didn't take their place in family with load-bearing pillars. And we just repeat those cycles. So I wanna bring to the forefront, the spectrum from slavery into sonship is where we build, we take head knowledge, because we start off with that. And then we're transformed by the renewing of our mind and we create load bearing pillars so that we can bear the weight and responsibility for our role to fulfill His design of family. So in this encounter, I had prepped my word, I was done, I was happy with it. And, um, and then I was, there's, a, there's a case that, I'm work, well, that I was working on for myself, my own personal case that I was preparing to bring before the Lord. Almost like a court session type thing. And as I was preparing for my case, because it, it wasn't a small deal, it was a big deal. I was like, okay, I'm just gonna go wash some dishes because that, that'll help me kind of like, just bring everything into, you know, um, stillness. And as I was washing the dishes and I was thinking about the case that I was about to, so the case was about a part of my world that is still kind of in Egypt. So that, that's just, a, it, it all makes sense. And as I was preparing it, I actually heard my heart say things like, that's a huge ask, or was it really gonna look like that? It just seems too good. It just seems too idealistic. Like, you know, really? Like that? And then I realised, because I've been doing this long enough, I realised, oh, value systems that I've created in Egypt that are now rearing their head as I'm about to present something before the Lord. And so, you know, I stopped what I was doing and I, and, I, and I went and I was just spent some time with him and I said, all right, okay, now if I heard them, you heard them too. So let me bring the value systems of my heart before you. Because I'm not gonna pretend, I'm not, I'm not going to smack my heart down and go, don't be ridiculous because my head says God is good. There's, there's a testimony that my heart is struggling with. It just seems too good for me to come before you and ask for this particular verdict. And so I just started to like pace around and, and, and just, you know, pour my heart out to Him. And it was like a, a portal of, of understanding opened up. And He said to me, He said, when the Israelites were up against the Red Sea, they were being persecuted. They were being pressed toward, pursued, were they not? Literally, they were literally being persecuted. And when they were coming, He goes, do you think that the Israelites were expecting me to split the sea? At 
best they were probably hoping for another plague to smite the Egyptians because there was precedent for that. They'd seen that before. They would have had faith for something like that. He said, they weren't expecting me to split the sea. I bet you had you been there on the day and you'd done a survey, you'd run through the camp and said how, you know, you know that the Lord's gonna deliver you because He's brought you this far, but what do you think it's gonna look like? Splitting the sea would not have been on top of the list. I don't even think that, yeah. And this is what He said to me. When I understood that, He he said, directly speaking into the value systems that came up in my heart, He said to me, not only was the parting of the sea a pathway of escape and deliverance for the Israelites, it also swallowed up every individual that represented their bondage and slavery. He swallowed up everything, every living person on the planet at the time that was a that held a position of authority over them to inf- to create their bondage and slavery than the entire army that would have enforced it. So the Lord closed the matter of slavery concerning the Israelites that day. He can he actually literally swallowed it up. And remember the word there. Oh no, okay. Put up Exodus because. It did my head in. So I went back to Exodus. Can you put up Exodus 14, 14? The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. That's what He said to them right before the miracle happened with splitting the Red Sea. The word fight there means to consume, to devour, to war on and to prevail. So that there, Exodus 14, 14 is a direct parallel to Psalm 18, 25. To the tormeen, you will show yourself tormem. Tormem means to consume, bring to an end. He completely swallowed up everything that they would have reassociated themselves with. That was the mercy of God that day because they weren't quite tormeming it. They weren't walking in a completely upright manner, undefiled. They were still faithless to a degree. So that was, I said to you at the beginning that breakthrough happens in two ways. God inclining Himself to us and our heart posture, which inclines our heart toward Him. So that day it was the grace of God that that they got their breakthrough in ways that completely would have blown their expectations and hopes. And He called them out of Egypt so He could have His family. That's why He called them out because they were in covenant with another family. Their identity was lost in the covenant that Pharaoh had stipulated for them. So he called them out of Egypt to gather his family. And the wilderness experience should be a honeymoon experience where the Lord was flexing all of His muscles to show His people how He wanted to care for them and how He was gonna provide for them. It was like He was courting them through the wilderness, but they couldn't see it because of their value systems that were created in bondage. And then, in, and then on Sinai, He derobed Himself. And He said, come up here, come up here and be intimate with Me. I want deep friendship with you. I want deep relationship. He derobed Himself. 
but they wouldn't do it. Now, the last time um, I brought this on that Tuesday night and I talked about how the Lord derobed Himself. If He did, you know what? If He didn't veil Himself, so derobe, robe, if He didn't robe Himself, we would not be able to exercise our free will. We would be compelled. We would be, we would have no sense of self. So He robes Himself, but the cost to Him is we do our own thing and in our own ways. And we don't posture ourselves to know Him and, and to be intimate with Him. We don't go after Him. So what I feel like the invitation today is, because last time I led you guys through laying down the prejudices that keep us holding the veil. Today, what I feel like the invitation is, is us derobing ourselves before Him. Now that is something that I'm not really gonna speak into, but if you wanna grab your communions, I'm just gonna frame it up the way that He showed me. And then I want you in your own time to take your communion. And I'm just gonna repeat a couple of the key points Because outpouring is the party, but the Lord is wanting to enjoy and facilitate the party with close friends. And He's wanting us to come before Him, to start to engage because I'm not, I don't have a structured prayer around this. He's wanting us to come before Him and trust that He is able to completely consume the matters concerning us that make us believe that we have to keep ourselves separate from Him that make us find it difficult to integrate into family. He's wanting to close the matters that have been haunting us, pursuing us, chasing us down in a negative way. But He can't do that unless we understand that we have to reduce and submit our value systems to Him. That we would have load-bearing pillars in our temple that we would take our rightful place in family, that we would uphold and honour His design of Zugos and Sumbibadzo. That we acknowledge that He chose to derobe Himself that day, but He's still the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. And for those of us who choose to go up the mountain and lay aside every illegitimate value that we are holding on to, that He's still waiting there completely derobed, that there is no chasm. So Holy Spirit, we thank You. We thank You right now that You are breathing on each and everything. That You are prepared to underwrite in this part of the journey. That we're not having to go through shame and condemnation to find something that's really important to us, but we are allowing You to underwrite Your part of the journey. And family wasn't meant to be a burden on us to fulfil. Family was meant to be a bond that completes us in You to fulfil. 
thank you that it is your responsibility. to reveal yourself in each and every one of those areas if we are truly wanting to see your light in those places. So just take your communion when you're ready and I just want to share right like just two seconds now. When I was... When I switched out the 50%, I was like, oh, I hope I'm doing the right thing. Then my son came up to me. My son was, he was painting over there as I was getting, as I was making the massive changes to my word. And he brought this painting to me. And and I said, what's that? And he said, it's the Pink River. And I said, what's the Pink River? And he said, or you could call it the Red Sea. I said, oh. And I said, and what's your favourite part of that story? He goes, when God swallowed up all of the Egyptians. So I was like, okay, that's the Word of the Lord for today. <laughs> all right, enjoy that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Jared, you get your free coffee, mate. <laughs> Don't forget, Nick. <laughs> If you want to just remain here, we'll have the pads going for a bit. If you just want to finish whatever you're, you know.